listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. We're starting a brand new series. And this series is on the book of James. Ten years ago, that was the first book that I ever taught through when I came here. When I first came to, uh, to Haven Baptist Church, that's what that was, there were, about, there were about four or five weeks that I just kind of was preaching whatever was you know, fresh in my mind. But there was a, there was a Saturday night that I went to a, a, another church here in Winter Haven to just kind of enjoy what they were doing on a Saturday night. And it was there that, that God just reminded me that this is going to be a long haul and that our, your, your, the folks that, that I've sent you to are going to be expecting more than just shotgun sermons from you just all over the place every week. You've got to settle down and do what I've taught you to do over the past five years in seminary. So during that Saturday night, I uh, recognized that, okay, I got to go back and I've got to do something different. I was going to preach out of James that next Sunday morning, uh, just a few hours from then, but I decided, okay, you know what, you know what, Lord, I'll just, I'll go home and, or I'll go back to the, to the office and we'll, uh, we'll just be prepared to start at the beginning of James. And that started the first book series that I ever taught here at uh, what was Haven Baptist Church then. Uh, it was on the book of James. And we called it Life in the Process. And that was one of my favorites because it was just the first. And, uh, and God really used the book of James in my life during that period. And I just figure after 10 years, surely we can go back and do it again, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's plenty of time and we can go back and do it again. This time, however, it's going to be done a little bit different. I'm going to start out this week uh, in James chapter number one. If you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to go ahead and just kind of turn with us and be there. We're going to read uh, first 18 verses. We're going to work through those. And then starting next week, I'm going back to Kids Connection because that's the first Sunday in February. We'll continue the series in James with some help. Next Sunday, uh, we will have Mike Kennan. We'll pick up where I left off the Sunday after that. Michael Shannon will pick up and uh, where he left off. And the week after that, uh, Greg Morris will teach and he'll pick up where Michael left off. And then the last week of February, Chad Greer will pick up where they left off. And then when I come back in March, we'll be moving along. So this year, it's a, it's a new series and some new helpers that are going to be helping me out during the time I'm in Kids Connection. Another thing that's going to be different about this series is that I try real hard. I don't know that I succeed very well, but I try real hard to, to come up with clever titles and, and, and try to try to connect it to culture as best I can with the titles and the visuals and all of that kind of stuff. This time through James, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open our Bible. We're going to go through James. We're just going to go through it verse by verse, and we're just going to let James say what it says. We're going to let God say to us what it says. No clever titles, no unique little phraseology, just what does God's word say, and how do we apply it to our life? So if you've got your Bibles, or if you've got version and you've got the live events, we've been away from that for a little while. Uh, we, we were having handouts, but now we're back on version. So if you've got your, uh, your phone, your tablet, wherever you are finding it's under events, you should be able to follow along there or in your Bible or on the screen. We're just going to jump into the book of James. I'm going to read the first 18 verses, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to talk about and try to highlight some of the things that we find there. James chapter 1, verse number 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, or let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers uh, the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my, bro- my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's take a minute and let's just ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of James. We ask that you will help us to, uh, to, to gain that insight that you want us to gain today. God, I pray that you will help me to um, articulate those, um, those things that, that you would have said. God, keep me from saying anything that would bring confusion, uh, certainly anything that would be inaccurate. God, I pray that, uh, that, that I won't get in your way and in the way of your word, piercing our hearts and saying exactly what you intend for it to say to us today in 2019. God, we love you. We thank you. We look forward to what you're going to teach us through the study of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. So I got a lot of notes. And a lot of times I have a, you know, a very strict outline and I don't have so much that today. I don't, I don't have so much of a strict outline. I've got some points that I think are, are key that we need to pay attention to as we move through these first 18 verses. But we could very easily turn these first 18 verses into about four sermons. But I just felt like that, that God wanted us to see this first. It's, it's an introductory passage, if you will. It kind of sets the stage for everything that we're going to to find in the verses to come. And and, and one of the fun things that we're doing this time around is is me and Mike and and Michael and Chad and Greg. We're sitting around a table. We did it Thursday night. We're going to do it a few more times through this sermon series. And we're just sitting around. And the first time we just read the book of James through and we've just been talking through it. We've been highlighting things and and asking questions of the text that those that are going to be doing the presentation can go back and and mine out and look into and it's just been a a real exciting time it was was a very engaging time and and it was exciting and so what I don't want to do is let the conventions of sermonizing get in the way because God's word says what it says and we're to do what it says so I think today we'll just move through the text I'll go ahead and kind of forewarn you it's going to feel like that I'm spending a lot of time in the first five verses and you're going to think he's never going to get through that's true because something very important is happening in the first few verses but hang on we'll get there and uh, you know I'll go ahead and let you know I won't explain everything these 18 verses have to say in this sermon and uh, you'll have all the rest of your life to mine that out and I'll be happy to point you to those that can help you do that let's start it out verse 1 James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings James is a letter From all that we can tell, James is the half-brother of Jesus, a a son of Joseph and Mary after Mary gave birth, being conceived, Jesus being conceived while Mary was still a virgin. Now, Mary and Joseph have had other children. Most believe that James is this half-brother of Jesus. He's identified in Matthew 13. He's identified again in Galatians chapter number one. He was a contemporary, of course, of Peter, and he interacted with Paul. And we also understand that this James was uh, likely the 
leader of the Jerusalem church following the ascension of Jesus into glory. We know that after Jesus ascended, that the believers assembled themselves, and and after a few days, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in them and among them, and the church was birthed. And out of those, certainly some of the apostles stood up and and, and took a, a lead, if you will, Peter being one of the first. But as the church began to expand, it seems that this James became the pastor, if you will, of this growing church that was formed first in Jerusalem. Uh, You notice that James says he's a servant of God. It it was a normal thing and a, a high aspiration for every Jew to believe that they were a servant of God. They wanted to be in the long line of those that had served the Lord throughout Israel's history. We know that Abraham was called the friend of God, but, but we, we know that the Jews wanted and aspired to be God's servant. But notice what he said after that. That was not so uncommon. But James says, not only am I a servant of God, but I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very important. You'll notice that James didn't say, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother. Everybody look at me and pat me on the back. No, what James says is I am a servant, a bond servant, someone who has willingly submitted to the lead of not only God, everybody wanted to be a servant of God, but I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a servant of Jesus, but a servant of the Lord and a servant of Messiah. You see, James, for all we can tell, rejected his brother's ministry. In those years that, that led up to the ministry, James probably wondered, why my, my half-brother is so weird? What is it about him? Oh, yeah, that's right. Mom and dad weren't married. I've heard the scuttlebutt in the community. And he probably led or was a part of those jeers and mocks and normal things that happen in the family, especially when you've got one who's never done anything wrong. And then Jesus laid down his life on the cross and was crucified. And you know who wasn't standing by his mother during this time? Wasn't James. Wasn't Judas, the other brother. Wasn't the other. Who was standing beside John, the disciple? And so Jesus says, John, take care of my mother. We can infer there because none of my other brothers are here to do that. Because she's thrown her lot in with me. Because she's standing there as a believer in me. My brothers are gone and James would have been one of those. Yet, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that when Jesus was risen from the dead, that he appeared to the twelve and he appeared to James. Most Bible students understand that to be the James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who rejected his brother in his ministry, but in his resurrection came to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer and one who probably regrets not believing sooner but I would be willing to bet relishes in the memories of the things he saw of his half-brother growing up and then having seen him die, having seen him risen. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is James. He was martyred in about 62 AD. Uh, He was thrown off of the temple. The Jewish leaders pushed him off of the temple uh, and he fell, likely breaking his legs but not dying. That was followed by them coming down and stoning him. And when that did not work, one of the religious leaders or uh, uh, one of the temple guards picked up a club and clubbed James in the head because of his faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before this time, obviously, James writes this letter. Notice who he writes it to. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's obvious that James is writing to the Jewish believers, the 12 tribes. This was a very common way of referring to Israel. So it's the 12 tribes, it's his, it's his brethren nationally. 
And he's writing to them, he says, in the dispersion. This idea, this diaspora is the, is the Greek word. I'll always remember that because the foundation that paid my scholarship at seminary was the diaspora foundation. This idea of dispersion, it just simply means scattered. It means that the people were scattered. The people of the Jews were scattered outside of Palestine even before the crucifixion of Jesus. They had moved out, they had moved away, and they were in differing differing locations outside of Palestine. But in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number uh, 8, I believe, specifically, we hear about one being killed by the Jewish leaders. His name was Stephen. And following the martyr of Stephen, a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells us that a great persecution arose and those of believing Jews had to scatter because what what had happened to Stephen was likely to happen to them. It's interesting to note that the one behind much of that persecution was a man by the name of Saul who himself was going to encounter the risen Jesus on the way to do some more persecution and he's the one that we know of in the New Testament as Paul. But these Jews, these brethren have been scattered and and primarily this dispersion had to do with those that were moved north up into Phoenicia, up into Syria, those that had moved to the island of Cyprus. These are the ones that James is writing to my fellow brethren, my brothers, my fellow Jewish believers who are outside of Palestine, whether by choice or by force. Here's what James is going to do. He's going to now embark on the most practical letter in all of the New Testament. In all of the New Testament, you'll not find less doctrine and more practical instruction. That doesn't mean there's not doctrine in James, but the book of James is connected to doctrine that is already understood by the hearers. What we're going to find in James is a very practical letter that can be put to practice not only by the Jewish believers but by us in 2019 every generation between and any generation that will follow in seminary they taught me when you look at God's word you've got to take the modern day audience you've got to take them up what they call the hermeneutical ladder let me explain to you what this is the hermeneutical ladder says the original hearers heard God's word taught preached or read to them and they understood it in their context and that's why you read it in God's word you can find some very bizarre things like like you can't kill and eat a goat in its own mother's milk and you're just like I wasn't planning to do that anyway what did that have to do with me well we have to take it up the hermeneutical ladder here's what we do we take it out of the context in which it was written and originally heard and then we've got to climb the theological ladder to the top where we find out what the what the 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 meaning for all time what is the thing that God was trying to communicate about that goat in its mother's milk what is the bible principle that God is trying to to make clear for all generations and then we climb down the ladder into our cultural contemporary context and we apply it based on the big principle of what we're to understand and do and how we're to respond in this culture the cool thing about James is that that her hermeneutical ladder is more like a bridge it's more like a bridge where what James said to them we can almost walk straight across that ladder and land in 2019 and just simply do what God said through James to that first century people we can just do it today and know that we're applying God's word in our culture a few things we might need to explain along the way but let's keep going James says, verse number two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
James starts his letter with verses two through four. Of course, he didn't write verses. He just started it out with a little paragraph. What we think to be the hub around which the whole book of James is revolving. These verses, two, three, and four, give us the point the point of his letter, the point of to, to these believers who are scattered abroad, including us today, who are hearing it in 2019. Here's the point. He says, count it all joy when you face various trials. Because these trials are testing your faith. And when they do, it produces steadfastness. And when that steadfastness has reached its completion, you'll be perfect and complete and mature. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you. After I tell you this, you're probably not going to want to come back next week. You're probably going to want to close your Bible and just walk out and go, that dude is nuts and there's no way, there's no way I'm going to do that and there's no way I'm coming back because that guy's crazy. Here's what James is saying. When he says count it all joy, this is a intellectual exercise. This is deciding in your mind to celebrate something that does not naturally get celebrated. Let, let me just, let me ease you into this. If we were farmers, we're not. We've got some modern day farmers that farm in the little tubes with the water that go up, but there's no plowing, there's no sweating. It's just uh, hydroponics. It's cool, but it's not real farming. Real farming is about land and animals and plows and sweat and sun up to sundown. And, you know, if we were farming in that context and we came into a drought, we know that without rain, there would be no crop, correct? And we're experiencing a drought and we've planted all of these acres with whatever that crop is that we're expecting to, to grow and harvest and sell to feed our family. And it hasn't rained in months. And we've been irrigating as best we can, but simply we can't afford to put that kind of water and pay for it in order to, to have the water needed. And we're praying and we're asking and God, finally, we hear that thunderclap and kind of like the other morning, like Friday morning that most of us got woke up from sleep. You're like, okay, it's rain today, I guess, because it was raining bucket loads. Let's just say that we're the farmer and the ground is dry and we got crops in the ground and we see that storm coming and you know how you can see the sheets that are falling before it even gets to you and you stand out there and you just, you just wait as the rain comes across your property and just envelops you and soaks you as the rain falls and you're just just like, yes, Lord, woo rain. That's celebration, right? Now take that same picture, that same excitement, and add that to the biggest life difficulty you've ever faced. I'm going to give you a minute so that you can think. What's the worst thing that has happened to you? If you had to write what was the worst thing, but don't stop there. Start with the worst and then keep adding because he says, count it all joy when you face trials of varying kinds. Some more intense than others, some more hurtful than others, some more painful, some longer than others, some still going on. Just go ahead and make your mental list. Here's what James is saying. James is saying, when you face these trials, woohoo, thank you, Lord. For this opportunity. So I had to act a little bit crazy to go along with what you're thinking. That is nuts. So what are you saying, Kevin? I'm supposed to be excited about the stuff that has caused me pain? Let's take it a little farther. All of those things that you prayed and asked God, please, God, take these things away. Please, God, remove these from my life. Please, God, move this. Take me out of the storm. Calm it down. I know that all you got to do is stand up and speak in the waves, and I want you to do that for me in this. And James goes, that is what I want you to be celebrating. 
Can I tell you something? There ain't a human in this building that does that naturally. There's not a one of us in this room that will go, oh yeah, I've been doing that anyway. We know that ain't the truth. That's not natural. That's not normal. That's crazy that we would celebrate the things that have brought us pain. Why in the world would we do this, Kevin? Why would James say that? Why would God ask me to do that? Well, he tells us. He says, I want you to celebrate it, not if you face trials, when you face trials, because they're coming. In fact, you came in here this morning either experiencing a trial, having just come out of a particular trial, or you don't know it, but one's going to meet you for today's over, and it's going to frustrate you and make you mad and get you upset. And God says, no, no, I want you to celebrate those things. I want you to stand out and watch it envelop you as you cry out in thanksgiving with joy. Because... You know, and you know this is true. We don't like it, but we know it. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We don't use steadfastness a lot in this time, but we do use the word endurance. You know that when your faith is tested, it brings about endurance. Now, let's take tested first. Tested is this idea of of manipulating to determine its purity, its validity. You think about the crash test dummies. You, You put them in the car and then you send them at 80 miles an hour down that little stretch and then they run into the wall and you look to see what happened to the dummy because you want to know whether or not your safety systems are going to keep him safe. It's that idea of testing to see. That's the only reason that Volvo can say that they're rated the highest in in consumer safety because they put the test dummies, they put the computer programs, and they have destroyed a whole bunch of Volvos making sure that their safety features work. This idea of testing When we're going through these things, it's not so much that God is causing them as much as it is he's using them. Can we just be okay with the fact that I don't need to explain to you that we face trials and difficulties and pains of various kinds because we live in a world wrecked by sin? Can we just agree on that? And so God is not causing you to have that disease. God is not causing that family member to do it. They did. God is not causing this pain that's coming into your life, but in that realm over which he is sovereign, God is using those things. And he wants us to recognize that when we get soaked and enveloped in that trial, it is a test of our faith. It is pushing out of us what God wants to be there. That is complete and total trust in him no matter what. So what do we do? We go down the kitty slope and we show that we are capable with our little, I don't even know how to do this, but those of you who have skied, you got your, you got your little sticks tucked in you and you're going down a little kitty slope and the little kids are going around you're like, yes, we're skiing. You know, you get down here. All right, I did it. I was able. Now what's next? Well, let's go down the, uh, the yellow diamond. Okay, let's do that. So you go up a little higher and it's a little higher and you go down and you fall. What do you do? You go back up to the top and you go, you testing to see if you're really capable of skiing on those pieces of wood on top of the snow. This idea of endurance, the testing to see if you've got what you should have, that faith. God is testing to see that faith come out and that trust come out and be displayed. And not only that, when he's doing that, he's building endurance. It's that idea of I went to the gym last week and I saw that dude lifting all them weights and I'm like, we're about the same size. We're about the same age. So I got under those weights and I was like, yeah, I can't push that up. Why? Because I'm not strong enough. So I reduce the weights and I push them and I push them, push them. In a couple of weeks, I put some more weight on. I push them and I put, I put some more weights on. Before long, I'm pushing up more. You know, I'm not telling you what I do. I'm just saying that if I did. And you build endurance. Any of you who have ever run, any of you who have ever bicycled, have learned how to bicycle miles and miles farther than your wife wants you to go, but you've built up endurance by the working out. 
That's what James says, count it all joy because those tests, God God is using those trials to push your faith out and make it displayed and he's making it stronger. So guess what? Once you get through that test, you go, I've arrived and I'm here. No, (laughs) get ready because God's going to want to put some more weight on there so that you might shine brighter. You go, I don't get this. Where could I see this? I'll show you in the New Testament. Just watch the life of Paul, the apostle. Because like his life went from, from, I mean, he was sitting pretty until he encountered Jesus. And then all of a sudden his life started getting tough. And then it just went from tough to worse to worse to worse to head lopped off. And you know what he was doing the whole time? Yes. Yes, I'm thrilled to be able to suffer for Christ. I'm thrilled to be able to hurt so that you can see God push out the faith in me so that I'm just getting stronger for my sake. No, for your sake. Because as an example, I want to show you what it looks like to be tested and learn endurance through trials. That's what James is about. So we won't see y'all next week, but I'll go ahead and finish this. He says, so that as you are building endurance, or God is building endurance in you, this endurance, he says in verse number four, will have its full effect if you let it. How how do we not let endurance have its full effect? It's when we go, I ain't going back to that gym. I'm done. I I done reached my, I done reached my max. All I wanted to do was bench 300 pounds. I'm there, man. I'm done working out. Every doctor in the world will go, you a dummy. Your body needs consistent working out. But if we quit, what's going to happen? You know what'll happen. You'll get back down to where you can't push up that bar again. So let it have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. When Jesus returns, Paul said in Philippians, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of his return, till the day of his returning. When Jesus returns, he'll bring to completion what he has begun. I've used this illustration before here, but but if you can imagine when, when we come to know Jesus as our savior, we've been pushing the wheelbarrow of us. All our life, we've just been pushing that wheelbarrow full of us. When we come to know Jesus as our Savior, what we get to do over the next however long we have before we die or Jesus returns, we have the opportunity to take out along the way some of us and put in more of him. And as we go through a trial and we pass that test because we continue to trust him, we take out a little more of us and we put in a little more of him and we walk along. And and when he returns... I know it's a simple, but when Christ returns, the idea is that whatever is left of us in the wheelbarrow, he's going to remove and going to replace it with him. He's going to bring to completion. But wouldn't it be exciting to get to that day, whether it's our death day or his return day, and to find that in our wheelbarrow is more of him than there is of us. Wouldn't it be exciting to be able to go, Lord, I know you got to change some of what I got left but I'm excited about what you've already done in my life. Wouldn't that be thrilling to have a lot less of you on the day of his return or the day that you stand before him? That's the idea. The way we do that, count it joy. I just, I hate to even use, you understand that I'm telling you what it says. I'm not telling you that this is what I do. I'm telling you what it says. I got to put this to practice just like you do, okay? That's why we say, I don't even like to say these words. Bring it on. Why? Gosh, I don't want to say, I'm like you. I don't want him to bring it on. But we know that ultimately, and, and, and you'll hear it at the end, God's got this. When we were considering cutesy titles, we were thinking about, you know, things are hard, but it's all good. It, it, you know what? It really is all good because God's in control. Even when he's storming, 
that statement, God will never put on you more than you can handle. That's a lie. God will put on you this afternoon more than you can handle. In fact, you got on you more than you can handle right now. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the only reason you're standing up and keeping on moving because the Holy Spirit is within you and helping you. He's like moving your legs so that you can keep walking. So it's not he's not. It means he's going, God, I bring it on because I know you're going to sustain me and I know you're going to use it. And ultimately, it's about your glory. And I want my faith to be to be strengthened and tested. And I want to become uh, an endurance runner for your glory. That's what James is saying. The folks hearing from James probably wanted to hear, James, a servant of Jesus Christ, greetings to my brother. God's going to fix all your problems, and you're going to live in wealth, and you're going to have security, and everything that's going wrong is going to be made right. Just because you're a follower of Jesus, praise God, say amen, give an offering, go home. We'll see you back next week. Anyway, he said, he said, you're going to face trial, and it's going to be all over the place. You need to celebrate it. That's the hub. But then he says, there's some abundant resources available. Here's where we, here's where we got to travel quickly. Here's what he says. God's not going to leave you alone. Look where he goes. Verse number five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without, uh, to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him, verse six, ask in faith with no doubting. So you're going through the trial and you're seeing it come at you and you're like all right I'm gonna get excited I guess I don't want to but I'm gonna make up remember I'm gonna go through the mental exercise of deciding to celebrate something that I won't naturally celebrate so okay I'm gonna decide to celebrate Lord I don't know what to do God's not up there going well figure it out big boy That's not what happened. He's going, I get it. You don't know what to do, so ask me for wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, go out. Lord, I don't know what to do. Well, just ask God. God, will you give me wisdom? Look what he says. He gives it generously. When I go through a buffet line, or back, when when I go through a buffet line, it's going to be a generous portion. When I go through a line like up at Eagle Lake Diner, they stand behind the thing and they, you tell, I like some green beans and some, uh, I like some uh, mashed potatoes and they put it on there for you. There's some folks up there that I like being behind the counter more than others. You go in, you're like, yes, today's going to be a good day because she gives a generous portions. You know what I'm saying? It's generous for and, and And so I like to do that. Uh, here's, here's the, to all who ask, he gives liberally, generously. When we go to Georgia, my kids take such advantage of my mother. I mean, they just absolutely take advantage of her. Here's what she'll do. She said, well, what are y'all hungry for? My boys, they'll start talking about chicken and dumplings the first day we're there and they'll keep talking about it. My mom will spend probably... $300 on milk and bread and chicken. I, probably not that. I don't know how much chicken dumps, but she's making a pot all the time. You know why? Because they ask her to. And you know what? She don't stand over them going, are, are you getting, are you really going to get that much? And she just loading it on there. You know why? Because she loves them. And if they finish that pot, she's back to the store, buying more milk, buying more stuff to make more dumplings. Make up your mind. I don't want to be excited about this, but God, I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to count this joy. But I don't know what to do. God, will you give me wisdom in this? I'm going to fall if you don't give me wisdom. God says, I got you. And he'll give it generously to all. But you got to ask in faith. If you don't ask in faith... There's a lot that we could say about not asking in faith, but it's that idea of us going through the motions of saying, God, will you help me not really believing he's going to help me either because he don't want to or he can't or you really don't want to know what he has said because the first time we ask for wisdom, God's going to say, well, what have I already said? Have you put to practice what I've already told you? Because my wisdom is going to be to help you understand how to put this to work in your situation. But I'm happy to do that. But if we ask God for something without faith, doubting, you know what he says? He says that one should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
He must not, verse number seven, suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. But we'll go back, Andy, to verse number six, when he says, let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. You want to know how it looks for you to be in a storm just kind of tossed around and you just can't find your bearings and you don't know what's going on? It's because you hadn't seen the trial as an opportunity to build your faith and to build endurance and you've not asked God for wisdom or you've asked him for wisdom and just ignored what he said or you've asked him for wisdom and instead of waiting on him to give it, you just step on into it however you want to address it and you feel yourself tossed and driven about and God says that's what it's like when you approach me without faith you need wisdom ask i'll give it but ask in faith believing that what i tell you will work and that i'm giving it to you and then do it or you'll be tossed about and he says not only that you'll be like a double-minded man verse number eight unstable in all your ways so when it comes to standing in those trials if you need wisdom ask god And then he gives us a great example. Verse number nine. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of grass, he will pass away for the sun rises and scorches with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's talking about trials. He's talking about when you enter trials and if you don't know what to do, you need to ask wisdom. And let me give you an example, I think is what James is saying. The most common trial faced by his brethren in the dispersion was the trial of poverty. The trial of not having what you need and not having the ability to get what you need for a host of different reasons. And I think what James is saying is he's like the lowly brother, needs to boast in his exaltation. That makes no sense logically because the one who has nothing should only be boasting when they do receive what they need. James goes, nope. Poverty is the most common and most of you are experiencing it right now. What are you to do? You're to count it all joy by boasting in your exalted status as an impoverished child of God. Well, how do I do that? Because I know that God will provide because I know that ultimately my poverty here is not about my status has nothing to do with my standing before God because Jesus talked a whole lot about those that were blessed because they were poor I can trust God because I got no other options and he exalts he boasts in what he does not have how many of us did that this week How many of us got excited and celebrated something that we don't have that we simply want? Not that we need, but something that we want that we don't have. And we've pouted and done and we got upset because it ain't fair that I don't have and they do. And he's saying exalt in not having what you need because you trust God to provide. And if you're rich, you need to exalt in your humiliation. What what humiliation? I got all this stuff. He goes, yep, you got all this stuff. You know what happens? It's like the flower. Sun rises, sun scorches, flower petals fall, plant dies. Don't you put any trust in your earthly riches because they won't count you anything. They certainly won't keep you from the trial And there'll be a distraction to you from counting it all joy. Think about the rich excited about the fact that they've lost everything. We've had some financial bubbles in the last couple of decades. How many believers were in the line going, I see it coming. Praise God, I've lost everything. Because this is going to give me an opportunity to have my faith tested. And this is going to be an opportunity for me to experience and increase in endurance. Not one of us. Because we got to decide to do that. We've got to decide that we're going to see them through God's eyes. 
So he says, earthly riches are of no impact on our faith or on our trials when we're tested. Then verse number 12, he shows us two ways. Don't forget, we're talking about counting it joy, embracing the test, becoming an endure, an enduring follower. In verse number 12, he says, you're going to go one of two ways. The trials are going to come. You're going to go one of two ways. And here they are. Verse number 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Way number one. It's the way of embracing the trial, letting your faith be proven, and letting your endurance become stronger. And that will ultimately result in future reward. When Christ returns, and if I can go back to the wheelbarrow, and we're there, and we come up with our life in our wheelbarrow, and Jesus is able to see how much more of him is in there than it, than it is of ourself, because we've, we've let the trials of life be used by God to create and build and mature and he's able to give us this crown of life that comes to those who love him it comes to those who endure this is not getting into heaven you don't get into heaven because you've endured trials you get into heaven because you've trusted Jesus as the only way into heaven as the only forgiver of your sin through his death and resurrection but you get these rewards, if you will, by your endurance, by your faithfulness, by your letting God have his will more than you having your will in your life where God goes, I'm so delighted to give you this crown. And think about it. He's giving us a crown for enduring a trial that he has promised to walk with us through and give us all the answers we need to get through it. So it's really not that fair of a crown anyway. All we did was stand there and hold God's hand through something that he was walking us through, knowing that it's only temporary and it cannot destroy me. But that's what God wants to do if we endure. We look at the trial, we look at the testing, and we embrace it as an opportunity given to us by God to demonstrate our faith and to build endurance. Or you can go the other way. He says, let no one, verse 13, say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured. Anybody, any fishermen in the audience today? When he is lured by his own rattle trap, his own desire. He's being fished for. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown. Imagine this, you anglers. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings about death. He goes, you can stand and endure and pursue that eternal reward that comes only by your obedience. Or, when you're going through that trial... You can allow your own desire to say, here this comes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to respond in this way and it's rooted in my desire and it ultimately ends up as sin and then sin brings about death in my life. Physical, maybe. Spiritual, certainly. Capable of being used in that time, absolutely. He said you can either trust and endure or you can fall into temptation. But don't you dare say, well, God, you brought me into that temptation and, and you tempted me to do bad. It's like what Adam and Eve did. You remember, you remember what Adam and Eve did, right? You know, God said, don't eat that tree. And they ate that tree. And then God came looking for them. They were hiding. He said, where you been? And Adam said, well, God, that woman you gave me, she gave me this to eat. I mean, not, not just putting it on her, putting it on God. See, God, you gave me the wrong woman. Now, you, you must have messed up when you made her. You got all the good out on me, and you messed up when you made her, and then she gave me that. It's her fault. Really, it's your fault. I was like, ain't my fault. Well, the woman go, well, it's a snake. That was snake you made, God. Snake you made come told me that. And of course I'm going to eat, but he was your creature. Why would you make such a thing? Don't dare say when we fall into temptation that God did it, but let me tell you something. Every circumstance in your life 
you have a bent in your heart that will turn you to respond in the way you think needs to happen. And God says, that's the temptation of your desire. And if you let it, you know what you'll do? You'll step right over into sin. And when sin is fully grown, death comes with it. We've experienced it. We experience it. Chances are great. Most of us are living in the death reality of something that we let our flesh decide what we were going to do this week or how we were going to respond. Two ways. Endure, trust him, receive the crown and get through the trial and see what God's going to do in your life or do what you think. The trial's still going to come and you'll be waiting around over here in death until you confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive you and you're back on the road again. But why go through all that and why miss out on the opportunities? There's two ways. Take the right one. Verse number 16. The results of God's will. What's, what's God doing in all this? He's wanting me to count it joy and I got all this to think about. What's the purpose? Here's what he said. Don't be deceived, my, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's bad, but God's good. And God is giving us what we need. God is providing and God is promising and God is enabling and God is giving out generously. Every good thing's coming from God. So you've got nothing to lose by rejoicing in the trials because it's producing God's will. Look what he says, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by his word. Of God's own choosing, he came to the pit and he pulled us filthy, stinking sinners out. And by his own grace, he pulls us out of the pit, sets our feet on a rock, gives us righteousness that doesn't belong to us. Jesus paid for it and he gives us all of this by his own choosing. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why does he do this? So that setting us there and allowing everybody to see how we respond to him in faith, endurance, building, and letting and watching and waiting and trusting that we might be a kind of first fruit. You know what a first fruit is? In the Old Testament, it had a, a connection to that that was to be offered because it was the first. It was the most anticipated. It was, quote, unquote, the best. It was what we're getting after not having anything. And we all want it, but we want to give it to God. And we all want ourselves, but we can be something for his glory. And that's what God's doing in the life of everyone who knows Jesus as Savior. He's preparing us to be fruits of his activity for his glory. And we become that by enduring faithfully, walking with him, counting it joy, doing what comes unnatural. But here's what we got to do, and I'll be done. We got to make up our minds. Got to make up our mind. We got to decide to see the trials of life through God's eyes. These trials as opportunities for rejoicing. We got to make up our mind to let God use those trials of our life to make us stronger by rejoicing as we trust him. And can I tell you, that ain't easy. It ain't natural. You don't want to do it. But it's what he said. That's how we meet what is coming. We got to make up our mind to consistently ask, seek, and believe God for wisdom because he wants to give it if we'll just ask, believing in faith, not doubting, putting it to practice. We got to make up our mind to put absolutely no trust in earthly riches. Don't 
pursue it. Don't strive after it because it's here today and gone tomorrow. And that's not just paper money. That's our own advancement. That's our own building of our portfolio. Whatever that is, we can't put a bit of trust in that. We got to make up our mind to keep faithfully enduring so that we might earn or receive, if you will, that eternal reward. We got to make up our mind to say no to our desires when it tempts us and how to respond to his, those trials. And we've got to make up our mind to remain confident in God's goodness and certainty of his glorious purpose for you and for me. We are active today because of what God wants to do in us because of what God's already planned to do through us and with us. But you know what we got to do? We got to make up our mind that what we go through is an opportunity to be strengthened. And then we got to let him strengthen us. And we don't want to do that. But that's what God wants to do through us. When we do these things in obedience to God, we will look and sound absolutely counter culture to this world. And if we look and sound like the world right now, if we blend right in and nobody tells the difference, we got work to do with James 1 through 18. And everything else that follows in the book of James, Mike's going to pick it up next Sunday, is built on the fact that we embrace these trials. We count it as an opportunity and then we put to practice the wisdom that God has given us for enduring and bringing him glory. Stand with me, if you will. We're going to pray. And then somehow we're going to go out the door and we're going to put to practice what we've just heard by God's grace, but only by his empowering. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, maybe you came today and you're like, I got no clue what you're talking about. Maybe it is that you've never trusted Jesus as your savior. Maybe you're thinking, Kevin, there is no way I'm going to do that. <laughs> I ain't even going to think about that. Well, maybe that is because you're not a child of God. We've got some folks up front that would love to talk to you. Mike and Tammy are here. It's their week. They'd love to tell you about how to become a follower of Jesus. I'd love to pray about pray with you for any need that you've got. But where we are right now, let's just pray together, Father. What your word has said this morning is hard to hear. I think it may be harder for us to hear than it was for the first century believers to hear because we're just so steeped in the expectation of comfort. We just think that our life is supposed to be comfortable and everything is supposed to be smooth. And when anything comes into our life that's hard or trying or difficult, well, that's just something that God needs to remove and take away so that we can live the life he wants for us. And then we encounter your word and we find out that what you want for us is strengthened faith, endurance in our walk. And you intend to use trials to do that. So God, for us to count it joy is going to require a complete overhaul in our thinking. I ask that you will start that overhaul in our mind. And give us the courage to not only begin thinking different, but letting our iron sharpen iron with our brothers and sisters. So that when they go through trials, our first thought would be to encourage them through it. Rather than fueling the fire that God's got to take it away. God, help us to know how to navigate these truths. Help us to want your will and your purpose for our life so that you might receive maximum glory. 
we might be qualified first fruits of what you're intending to do. God, I pray that you will use us this week. Help us. God, that you'll bring us back ready to continue, ready to learn. I pray that you'll use this body for your glory, the building of your kingdom. First in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.